Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Free Range American. Uh, today, I have a very, very special and important guest to me personally. Uh, I have a long history with this person. I've known him since the year 2003. Does that make sense? Yep. <laughs> this is uh, Colonel Retired Peter Donnelly. Welcome to the show. Thanks, JT. Awesome to be here. Uh, I'm super excited because we've been talking about having you on for quite some time now. Uh, you, myself, and a few other people that we know from the community have been doing some things on the side uh, since you retired, and you've since ran with that and and have been spearheading the whole thing with A15 Publishing. And I know a lot of our 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 fans and listeners and people that have followed us a long time for a while know about a one five publishing and, and you're kind of the mastermind behind the whole thing. But before we get into that, uh, let's start with when, you know, when your history in the air force, uh, you want all 30 years. <laughs> oh, Hey, you know, we'll start at the beginning. We'll get into when you, when you jumped, jumped off of, uh, into the ALO world and then, you know, the big impact that you had in the, in the TACP community, in the ASOS and ASOG community. Um, so yeah, by all means. Okay. Well, uh, it's probably is good background to start from, uh, the beginning, but I won't, uh, dwell too long on any one period. Um, I went through OTS, uh, after college, um, like most, I, I felt that, uh, need to serve. I uh, had a great childhood and also uh, I, that was my thought about paying it back. So I went to OTS. Uh, that's when it was uh, in San Antonio. Uh, graduated and it was the uh, 83, 84, 84. So still uh, right in the heart of the Cold War. Um, and actually, you know, about just about 10 years away from ending. Uh, so everybody in the class, uh, sorry, I, I graduated, I got uh, um, navigator uh, and I was, um, uh, went off to uh, nav school at uh, Mather, which was in Sacramento, awesome place. Um, uh, the base was awesome too back then. They used to have uh, huge uh, parties and everything on Friday nights. Uh, that's a whole another story, but uh, <laughs> uh so being the heart of the Cold War, everybody either got a bomber or a tanker unless you were, you know, ex exceptional or in the guard. So I got a bomber. I got assigned to uh, Fairchild Air Force Base, which was awesome. I loved the uh, Pacific Northwest. And uh, actually, because of the way things were going with SAC, uh, they had a PCS free. So I ended up spending eight years there. And that is uh, Strategic Air Command, uh, for those of you not familiar with the Air Force Air Force ac acronyms. And, and does SAC still exist, or did they disband that? It's disbanded. Okay. They have a Global Strike Command, and um, you know things are evolving yet again. And Strategic Air Command back then, I mean, this was in the heart of the Cold War, so everything was was being wrapped around nuclear. You know, all of our nuclear assets, things that can carry nuclear munitions and stuff like that. And you guys were kind of the the, the center point. Yep. Correct? And, yep. Right. And uh, at that time, I think there were still 11 uh, bomber bases and we were all uh, pulling alert uh, at that time. It eventually started to wean off of that. But uh, so we had six uh, B-52s 
And each B-52 actually was almost the equivalent of uh, the third most powerful country in the world as far as nukes. <laughs> you know, I had so us and Russians. Here's a question I have for you since since you served, you know, both in the thicket of the GWAT the entire time of, in, of it its existence, but you came in around then. How what was it like being in the the Cold War where it was a it was a silent it was a, a battlefieldless war, what I guess you could say, like what were the tensions like? Were there times like you guys would get briefings and it was like this is it? Like, were you, were you constantly, were there times where you ever woken up and they tell you to come in and you're like, Oh no. Oh no. Oh yeah. Cause, cause I know my dad had had a few of those incidents where the sub had to launch in the eighties because you know, there was one year where every Russian sub just took off and started headed towards the East coast and no one knew what the fuck was going on. So what was it like from in your guys's realm, uh, kind of being in that time frame? Yeah, it's, uh, uh, just as you described, and it's interesting. You mentioned, uh, um, having met your dad, uh, the, the, uh, situation that he was in there and, uh, on the West coast, the subs would come in. And if you were on alert, you uh, ended up doing what was called uh, double ARP, uh, nothing to do with old people, but it was uh, um, alert aircraft repositioning. And what instead of being in the alert facility, waiting for the klaxon to go off, you actually sat inside the airplane, sitting on the runway, kitted up, ready to go, cartridges in the engines, and you just waited. Uh, and Oh, so that's like a next level alert. Yes. Yeah. And then the level after that is actually airborne. So you would launch and they, they had a, a spot called the positive control turnaround point, the pick tap. And if you launched on that, that that's now serious. You'd go and you'd hold at that spot and you'd wait to get the codes. I think this is actually uh, un, uh, underrepresented in anything like uh, movies, uh, even some uh, books that the, the Cold War the idea that we were going to go toe to toe with the Ruskies uh, and exchange nukes and the way that we had it set up with the triad, the, the missiles, the submarines and the bombers. It, it was, you know, like if you think about it now, it sounds really insane, um, but it was so orchestrated. And today uh, I'm going to leap way ahead here to like today. Um, we have so many, most of our military, including the leadership, grew up after that was over. So we didn't learn how to fly and fight without radars, without radios, because we knew the Russians were going to jam everything. We knew all of our navies were going to be destroyed, uh, taken out or shut off by ourselves. So um, so we learned how to uh, operate in that denied environment. And now it's very difficult to try to get um, and I'll say younger guys, uh, that's accurate, but uh, everybody's not a spring chicken. But most of the folks today, you think about it, that was almost 30 years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and but as I'm as I'm putting myself in that position, I'm just curious, you know, that is a weird a, a weird conflict, if you will, to to or a weird time frame to specifically be in the position that you were in because you're you're the main focus between you guys and the submarines like you know you guys were our get get it on target you know we have the big the big minutemen you know icbms all in the middle of the of the country uh but 
it was it was you guys that was that was kind of I don't know what would you call it like the the scare tactic or like hey we're going to be able to touch you yeah, instantly. It's a, a good analysis because uh, the bomber was the only one that could be recalled. You know, the submarine it launches missiles, the the silos, it's over. Uh, so we were the the stick that poked the bear. You know, there were times we were sent to the uh, Russian border, the international uh, uh, separating line on the west. You know, between the east and the Alas- west, Alaska and, and yeah. Russia. Right, we'd fly up there, uh, up the Pacific, and we'd orbit, emit a little bit, so they knew we were there. They'd send out interceptors. Uh, we've been escorted several times away from their territory, just like the bear bombers did with us. A cat and mouse teasing game, you know, and and uh, everybody just kept their fingers crossed that nobody would make a big mistake. That's that's wild. All right, so you were there for you said what twelve years? Eight years. Or eight. eight. Oh. Yeah, so I left there as a captain, and then uh, a quick story. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> uh, relating to Fairchild was uh, most of the the folks in the military, and uh, at the time it was it was uh, national news about the uh, B fifty two that crashed there, and uh, one of the uh, members, uh, squadron members, was the squadron commander Mark McGeehan, who went down. As the co-pilot, he he uh, went down with everybody else in the plane. Uh, all great guys, all personal friends. Uh, I didn't know the vice wing commander uh, very well, but uh, the rest of them uh, I either crewed with or were friends with. But the reason I bring up uh, Mark McGeehan is because he got me my next job. And uh, I I flew on that crew that did the air show, and it was that was my job. And this is, uh, for context, this is an extremely, like, famous incident, and it was 1991, correct? Mm, yep. Mm-hmm. I think uh, 98, It was somewhere around No, sorry, around sorry. It was uh, 94. 94. Yep. Uh, a B-52 is flying at the air show at, at um, Fairchild, and as it goes into a turn, it just goes into the ground and it's a it, yes that video has been around it's been showed at safety briefings and everything like that so this is what this is what you're talking about yeah right so uh uh him getting me that job and insisting that i not fly the air show and stick to the plan that he had for me as as my uh mentor and um you know an example of how leaders take care of uh subordinates um he insisted I go on schedule to the academy, which really saved my life. And uh, uh, the academy job was great. Um, I started uh, really kind of honing how I would lead things. Uh, actually, I did that well before, you know, as, as we all do as you grow up in the military. Uh, but it was a really fun job because you had a bunch of uh, academy cadets that didn't really know anything about the military. You're trying to tell them about the realities of it and everything. And, and it was a lot of fun. You know, they're, they're great people and, and uh, spent two years as was called an AOC as um, air, air operations. Officer. Oh, this is different. Yeah. This is okay. uh, air okay. officer commanding. And so Got that's you, you're the, like the, the responsible person in charge of all these irresponsible ki- uh, cadets <laughs> Uh, so I did that for two. Then I did the IG, uh, deputy IG, which I would come back to do later in my career. 
there for two years also. And um, uh, that's where I learned why they call the Academy the zoo. There were so many crazy things going out on there. And uh, I've never heard that. So (laughs) (laughs) excuse me. Sorry. Uh, The one actually, if you go there, uh, have you been? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know where the, the chapel is and it's got the you're overlooking the terrazzo. Uh-huh. Uh, so we're all the cadets assembled that that's really why they call it the zoo is because you got all the civilians sitting up there looking down at the cadets like they're um, zoo animals. But uh, <laughs> so I learned a lot again, you know, a lot of really crazy things, too much to go into. Uh, after that, I went to uh, uh, Langley, which is actually yeah. where I'm at now. I uh, spent three years there. And then um, in 2001, I moved up to uh, Fort Drum. And then uh, just a couple months, and that's when I became an ALO, uh, Air Liaison Officer, and uh, with the 10th Mountain Division. And uh, uh, what was it? Probably three months later, 9-11 happened, and I was uh, off to the races. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. And, uh, yeah, you you were on the ground fast. Like, how many days between 9-11 going down and... You being in theater, where did you stage K2? Uh, yeah, actually, how, how, how long was it? Uh, sorry. So, yeah, uh, 9-11 happens. Uh, General Longoria comes out to uh, 20th ASOS, which is the ASOS that's aligned with the 10th Mountain Division, as you know. And uh, uh, if we count the days, it was maybe like uh, let's see, a couple weeks. Um, he came out after 9-11, a couple weeks. And then we uh, um, deployed to Kuwait in uh, November. And then from there, there was a whole sequence of events that uh, I kind of put it like I forced Gump my way through the beginning of the war. And uh, I was assigned as kind of like an ops officer at the uh, um headquarters of uh third army for the air force liaison element there and uh so that that's a that's a core so you were up at you were the core alo pretty much uh not quite uh general longoria was oh okay yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but and, as you were you were on the the jock floor per, then yeah like yeah. as as that position you know briefing the the theater commander on what air assets and air power and stuff we had to offer yeah, pretty much. And then uh, uh, things happened. And, and uh, on the 5th of December, a B-52 strike in support of soft, uh, sorry. Uh, triple nickel, 555. And we had a um, fratricide. Mm-hmm. So uh, General Longoria sent me, Colonel Longoria at the time, sent me uh, into Camp Rhino which is where the Marines were staging out of to link up with the ODAs and to assist them in um, making sure there were no more fratricides uh, caused by uh, B-52s was the, I guess, the the rationale of sending. And yeah, just go, uh, if you could explain what a fratricide is or a fratricide incident, because it it is one of those things that is one of the most scary things for a JTAC or a friendly unit. Yeah. Uh, good point. Uh, as uh, JTAC yourself, uh, the objective of the entire community, 
the air ground community and the Air Force is to prevent uh, airplanes from dropping bombs on friendlies. So what happened in this case, uh, there was a, uh, something went awry and actually a friendly weapon hit friendly forces, thus the term uh, fratricide. It was new gear. It was gear that nobody had ever used before, and and it caused caused this incident to unfold the way it did. So you went out there to invest, like investigate, as, or or were you just there to kind of ask questions and then make and and do some teaching to make sure that it didn't happen again? A little bit of both. Um, yeah. And from there, what uh, this is actually, a, I think it's a great story. It was very uncomfortable at the time, but. So I land at Camp Rhino. Actually, I, we took off out of, uh, I'm not sure if I can tell you where, but we flew into uh, Afghanistan and we were about, um, I'd say we were about 10 minutes away and the uh, base was uh, under fire and uh, we were taking SAM shots in the uh, MC-130 that we were flying in. It was me and uh, about 10 other uh, special forces guys from uh different countries and after about the fourth sam shot that went off uh you know it was air bursting right next to the aircraft the pilot had had enough turned around flew back to uh the location we landed and my orders were to get there so i jumped on the next plane got in the next night uh it was really just crazy i was like i never thought i'd go to the war by myself <laughs> so, so I get there, I'm dragging my bags, you know, at the time we still had to carry around all the, the chem gear and stuff like that. It was just, you know, a bags and your rucksack and radios, everything. It was just, uh, you know, quite the typical load that you're used to. <clears throat> so, uh, I walked through the, the, the jock door and there's uh, general Mattis. Yeah. So I figured, well, might as well go to go uh, meet the man and I'm walking up to him and I'm starting to salute him. And he says, who the fuck are you and what the fuck are you doing on my airbase? And he immediately stopped everything he was doing. And for the next X number of minutes, he uh, escorted me to the uh, Talsi at the end of the runway and ordered them to put me on the next uh, aircraft off the airfield. And it was just the dirt strip. <clears throat> I couldn't do that. He's not my boss. Uh, I had orders. I know. This just seems like I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with this story because as we progress in your history, this is a book that you've written. So I, I'm familiar with this. But to me, it's just like it seems like an utter waste of time Like because not everybody, anybody that knows military operations, not everybody has control or knows what's going on. So why would you even bother wasting your time with a guy that's obviously on an, on a mission that was given to him by somebody higher to just interfere with that because all you're doing is causing more delay and more time because what, what this is going to turn into, if it played out how he wanted, you get put back on a plane, you go back and then somebody higher than him tells him to stop doing that and you go back and now you've just wasted how much time trying to get the original mission done that you were given to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. Uh, but I think we've all learned uh, uh, the character of General Mattis, and uh, I think he's a. Uh, I respect him. I like him actually. And uh, fast forward uh, after the invasion, uh, and I'll tell that uh, real quick. But uh, we met up again, and I reminded him of of him escorting me to the end of the runway, and uh, he laughed and he said something like, uh, "You know, uh, same 
guy's different shithole or something like that. It was it was a friendly exchange. So uh, I E&E'd back to the uh, compound, and uh, long story short, I linked up with an ODA, and uh, they needed, they didn't have a, 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 Jack, a JTAC at the time, uh, and they were missing, they had an open uh, hole in their ODA, so they said, come along, we could use you. So I actually, uh, that's where the Forrest Gumping started, and, and we uh, <laughs> participated in... Now in the, you find yourself as a JTAC with a Special Forces team. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, I'm, I'm a couple months as a ALO. <laughs> you know, I, I got my uh, certification, and uh, so now I'm running around downrange. We took over Kandahar. Most of that uh, was done by... Uh, uh, the prep work was done by some great JTACs. Uh, I'm sure you've uh, might have even interviewed them that uh, did all the handiwork that opened up the field. We we assaulted it, but there wasn't much uh, left to do. So I ran around with the ODA there for uh, um, a couple of weeks uh, doing some SR missions, strategic reconnaissance, um, things like that. And then I actually flew back up to K2. That was actually the first time I got up there and uh, – um, uh, Shaq Beauchene, uh, my squadron commander at the 20th was positioned up there to integrate with fifth special forces group to help out with all the air ground stuff. So, uh, um, <laughs> I worked for him for a few weeks and then another mission came up, went down range, uh, came back and then, uh, Circling it all back, it culminated in the first conventional battle of uh, the GWAT, the Global War on Terror, was uh, Operation Anaconda. Yeah. And uh, I ended up being the uh, primary ALO, uh, the, the guy who ran all the air support for the operation. And that was uh, nuts. It was a uh, furball. Um, I did some things before the operation kicked off. Uh, the Air Force felt that it wasn't... Uh, uh, properly informed, which wasn't the case. You know, I was there. I was the 10th Mountain ALO. 10th Mountain had had taken over from 5th Group as the uh, lead for the operation. And again, I could go on for that for, for uh, quite a while, but uh, eventually it was about two and a half, almost three weeks of fighting. And uh, it was uh, very interesting, and there's still lessons learned from that um, it's been characterized repeatedly since then as a uh, as a um, really screwed up operation, but it, it really wasn't. You know, when you have fourteen hundred eleven uh, soldiers air assaulting in and fourteen hundred eleven coming out, um, you know, can't be that bad. And and a thousand of the enemy didn't go home. Uh, wow, it, it's pretty good. However, you know, there's there was Roberts Ridge. Yeah, and Takugar had, had was going down right at the pretty much the beginning of that, right? Yeah, yeah the operation kicked off on the second, and uh, uh, Roberts Ridge was uh, the fourth. <clears throat> so, and and then again, heroism uh, times uh, you know XX, and we just had uh, recently one of our airmen uh, there just was awarded the Medal of Honor for that posthumously. Uh, and just recently. So that's what, um, you know, almost 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and then the interesting thing is, uh, that after that, um, we all kind of culminated back at Kuwait, uh, hitting the reset button and, uh, the Colonel pulls us in, uh, just a couple of us and says, Hey, uh, 
you know, good job and everything, but we're getting ready to invade Iraq. So we broke <laughs> right into uh, the planning for that. And uh, that was my next, uh, I was still at the 20th. I was only there for two years, but then we uh, launched the invasion of Iraq and uh, I was, I participated in that uh, first push. Uh, I was in my last week of basic training and we weren't really doing anything but cleaning up and getting ready for graduation. And I was on a detail on the parade grounds and the TIs ran out and called us all in and flipped on the TV and the bombing had just started in Iraq. And they were like, they look so scared. These MTIs, they were like, Oh my God, we're in two wars right now. And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So then how, yeah. How did you manage to get um, pushed down to the 14th ASOS, which is the TACP squadron in Fort Bragg uh, just after two years of being up at Fort drum. That was a tour. Uh, at that, in those days, uh, oh yeah, that's Halo right. tour two years, so it was time to move. And uh, at that point, uh, my boss, uh, General Longoria, or I keep calling him General, he he uh, left the services, General, but at the time he was Colonel. So I just say L.A. L.A. Uh, had uh, uh, designs to help me in my career and progress, and and he saw something in me, so he wanted to send me to uh, what he felt was, and I think you know we would agree best ASOS in the, in the world, yes. you know, especially uh, that time frame. Yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. <laughs> and uh, so I got there and, and uh, when you were there uh, yeah. right off the bat, 2003, I was a DO uh, did that tour for uh, two years, uh, deployed once as uh, the EA SOS commander. And then I formally took over, did two more years as the commander Um and then I did uh, deputy commander of the 18th ASOG and the commander of 18th ASOG. Uh, during that time, I deployed four times to Iraq and three times to uh, Afghanistan. And then uh, uh, just before retirement, I uh, I got my uh, elephant burial ground job and they said, OK, you can go be uh, the deputy IG at ACC. The inspector Air- general. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I had a little experience with that. So I went and, uh, you know, it was actually a fun job. And, and uh, was it? Yeah. Cause well, you got. I, I'll predict this for you. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's like you have always been one of the best people of, 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 of handling situations in such a calm and objective I, like lens. So for you to go in and, and, and take a job where, you have to go investigate a situation and see who was actually wronged in these. I think that's a, that was a great place for you to, to, to end up at. Well, thanks. Thanks. And, and that's, uh, I hope that played out that way. Uh, it felt like <laughs> it. And, uh, then I, uh, uh, actually, sorry, the best part of it was it kind of reminded me of what the bigger air force was all about, you know, how it is, uh, being in the air ground business and an ASOS as a, a JTAC or a TAC-P, you are, you have one foot in each camp, you know, you're in the air force, but they don't really get you. And then the they army don't really doesn't even pay attention to you. No. And like. those days we were so underrepresented. Uh, there was no wing. Um, no. you know, the, the ASOG commander reported directly to the ninth air Force, the uh, NAF commander. Um, and, you know, Not once in my entire time did I ever see a base commander or wing commander come over to an ASOS. 
Just like, eh, what? I don't know. I don't know what's over there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't want to, I don't want them to ask me any questions. I don't, I don't know who these guys are. <laughs> so yeah, that's awesome. Now you have, you have two bronze stars with Valor. Uh, one, one. Yeah. Well, when was that one from? Uh, Afghanistan. The first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, that, was that a danger close drop? No, that was with the ODA uh, okay. and uh, some ground actions. Oh yes, I, I remember that's the situation. You guys, you guys got rolled up on by a BMP, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was you want to uh, talk about that? <laughs> uh, not too much. Uh, you know, there was some, there was some waving and and uh, single digit exchanges first, but uh, you know that was just outside of Kandahar. Um, oh yeah, and there was some other stuff that was going on. It was, it, you know, it's it's hard to say things like it was really exciting and it was fun. You can say that in retrospect. You know, I, I, people misinterpret how you mean that. <laughs> don't yeah. don't don't worry. A, a lot of the guys we've had on before, they they definitely go with the fun route. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, you know, you really can't think of anything that's more exciting than than going to war. I mean, it's just. You know, sure. Uh, but when well, it's your entire focus for so many years is preparing for a situation you don't know if you'll ever be in in real life and then you're in it, there is this sense of like, oh, my God, it's finally here. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, when you leave it, it's hard to kind of get over it. Um, yeah. You know how it is, uh, especially after the first uh, tour where I was uh, – almost entirely in the field, um, even just sleeping without your weapon felt very weird, uh, and took some getting used to. Um, and then you, you feel like the job, it's not over. There's no victory parade. There's no, uh, surrender. Um, there was no flaught. We weren't pushing a line, (laughs) a line of troops or an enemy with a uniform. There was no, Specifically with Afghanistan, there's no fall of power. It's just pockets of battles here and there in different states or districts or areas. And yeah, yeah, you're right. It's, it's that's that's a super f- funny way to look at it. Yeah, I, I think uh, um, there's a that's part of what bonds the veterans together is those shared experiences that are kind of hard to understand and explain if you if you weren't in that seat, you know. Folks can can uh, conjecture a little bit, but, you know, you know what it's like. And and um, hopefully it's it ends up being a positive. I know it's not always, you know, that we have a lot of uh, our brethren that uh, suffer uh, ill effects of it. And, uh, you know, some of what I'll let you, you know, if you want to I, I'll tell you about is some of the books that yeah. uh, we've published are actually rooted in those uh, negative experiences dealing with PTSD, uh, just the the horrors of war, and and thinking about that every day and trying to get over it and and things like that. And and writing for some has is an outlet. So uh, we've tried to provide that outlet uh, through uh, our publishing. Yeah. So you uh, retired after thirty thirty years, thirty even yeah, a little yeah, a couple months. And, and it wasn't long after that we all started chatting about getting into the publishing game because we wanted to be, you know, we wanted to learn or, or learn the self-publishing process and then give guys that had these amazing stories, the guidance or the, the push they needed to, to do their, 
to write their books. And uh, your, your one that you were working on for a long time was one of the first ones we put out. Uh, and that's called Off We Go. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it, it starts right before September 11th. Well, no, no, it starts, it starts and talks about your time in, in SAC and being up at Fairchild and stuff. Briefly, um, yeah. Yeah, and then it goes, goes into the kickoff of 9-11. And you can talk about it. Yeah, tell us about Off We Go. Well, uh, thanks to you, um, I had tried to get the book published. I, it took me 10 years to write it. And um, it was a learning process and uh, a lesson in patience and frustration. Uh, once I finished it to where I felt fairly comfortable with it, uh, I approached uh, mainstream uh, agents and also uh, mainstream publishing houses. And I think I submitted 37 submissions uh, to those uh, submit, sorry, submissions to 37 different uh, publishing places and uh, publishing houses and, you know, got a rejection, two rejection letters. The rest uh, were all silent, uh, not, never heard anything from them. But uh, the feedback that, that I was getting was that they weren't really interested in, in military fiction. Um, and unless it was a very, um, you know, noteworthy already, popularly known event they weren't interested so you know you said hey what do you say we put together a publishing company i go that (laughs) sounds good (laughs) i saw i saw the success that guys like leo and marty scovlin were doing with with the stuff that they had they the books that they had wrote and put out and um they were two army ranger veterans and friends of ours that uh you know they just started writing books and they had they had they had kind of spearheaded or, or, or just self-learned this process to, to, to keep the control and, and publishing in your own hands to where you can put out the story you want without anybody modifying it or telling you no or anything like that. So it was, yeah, you, you had mentioned that project to me so many times. It really was that one that made me want to push it in because it, I knew somebody like yourself would take it seriously in, in learning what Leo and Marty could teach us about that realm and then run with it or create the process at least. So we knew when it, when we wanted to write, write our stories that we'd have an expert internally. Well, thanks for that. I, I <laughs> may not agree with the expert part. <laughs> I, it, it's been a long, uh, long learning process and, uh, um, you know, you mentioned Marty. Uh, we talked almost, I think, even before we formally formed the company. And, uh, you know, having read uh, Violence of Action, um, I met Marty. And, you know, by the way, his book remains, uh, if not our number one, uh, it's either one or two uh, best selling uh, books uh, to this day. It just keeps uh, selling and selling. Uh, great book, great effort by, by himself. And uh, so um, as we started to uh, to go through the process, uh, we we made some uh, wrong turns, I think, in, in how we thought we could could uh, accomplish the goal of providing an opportunity platform for veterans. That's really what it was, is how do we get the veteran story out there? How do we get veteran writers recognized. And uh, we want to capture, uh, the objective became capturing as many stories as we could of veterans that didn't want to necessarily even write a book. So we were going to help. 
so from that came There I Was. Uh, there I Was is a compilation of uh, war stories or veteran stories. It doesn't have to be a war story, but our, that was our second book that we released. And it uh, covered from World War One to the present day. A lot of our, our uh, uh, brethren that we had served with offered up stories. Uh, uh, we had World War Two, three stories from there, great stories. And then from that, uh, we got a story from a submission from a Vietnam vet. We wouldn't have published the book unless we had uh, stories from Vietnam vets. And we got one from uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired John Headley, and he wrote Saddle Up. And it is, if you think about uh, Platoon, uh, I think this is more realistic. Uh, that's kind of not the right way to say it, but uh uh, I'd say at least on par those experiences. And and John was in a recon uh, element and, um, you know, great writer. And we stay in touch today. And, and his book is still sells really well. There's an appeal to Vietnam, uh, I think, like no other uh, era, you know. And, and the other aspect that I really benefited from was meeting these great vets. And uh, uh, most recently... We have a World War II. He's one of a handful of the only living uh, veterans who served in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And he wow. served in combat in all three, was decorated. He lives in Philadelphia. We've been trying to link up, and then, you know, the, the virus thing happened. But uh, uh, Leo Herzog. Is he, the, is he the only one living that has three stars on a CIV? I'm not sure. I, I I actually went down there and met him and we we talked. He showed me some stuff has very little compared to all the stuff we're just showered with these days with uh, every decoration comes in a little thing and you got those yeah. stacked up. And he, he had like one piece of paper and uh, some things on it. But he was recognized that I think it was a, a Phillies game uh, and he was in his uniform and everything. Great guy. Great guy. So we're going to try to tell his story. It's just the logistics logistics have been difficult uh but there, it's not only uh the the military stories it's uh veterans writing all genres we've had science fiction uh kids books we've had a lot of kids books um novels uh sure there's there's a lot of memoirs they're all great it's it's just fun to read and uh, uh those individual stories and we're knocking them out left and right and and not just the the participating veteran a uh, great example is, you know, Mike Shropshire, um, his wife, Julie, uh, she served as a role player at NTC. <coughs> and she uh, wrote a book called Blood Girl. <clears throat> that was her nickname because they put fake blood on her, that, that she looked like she was a wounded uh, native. And and uh, a great book of her, her experiences. And, uh, um, you know, I could go on and on. Uh, I got them all stacked up here too. <laughs> yeah. Also, I see some of them in the back too. Yeah. Uh, so it's been a, a learning experience, but uh, we keep refining and, and uh, trying to make it as easy as possible on the veteran. Um, you know, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I was, I don't want to dominate this. Oh portion. no, not at all. Like, like, like for anybody out there that is that, you know, you thought your story or you, you had an experience that was crazy and, you've always dreamed of writing a book about it, or even if you just always dreamed of writing a book about it. I mean, this is, this is one of those things that we got involved in 
quite a few years ago early on and like it exists and we haven't talked about it a lot. So I'm glad we get to, t- I'm glad we're talking about it now because hopefully there's a lot of, a lot of guys out there that get inspired from hearing you talk about this and jump on, on, on possibly uh, putting a submission into a one five. Yeah, we encourage it. Uh, it's uh, it's a tough racket. Uh, you got to really manage expectations. Um, you know, I know that uh, if you're um, a celebrity, selling a book is is a three foot putt. Somebody writes it for you, they edit it for you. You just sit back and wait for the royalties. Um, mm-hmm. For with us, it's different. We assume all the risk, so uh, we're not in it for the money. We're in it for the um, the finished legacy. Product. Yeah. yeah, and the finished product, right? <laughs> and to help the veteran. So uh, actually, what I what uh, the company could really use is some uh, some help with uh, some of the things that I outsource for. Um, you, you know, like if you're if you have a, a if you like to read, you know, we we just like to give the raw product to different people to read it. We call those beta readers. And they just give us a coffee shop review. Uh, how, how'd you like the book? You know, how'd you like the characters, you know, et cetera. So that gives us uh, an opportunity to give feedback to the veteran, to go back to the drawing board, maybe go back and, uh, you know, some folks, just, you, you got to really take a class. You know, there's, there's a thing uh, to writing and it, it's, you know, a lot of people feel it in their heart, but you have to have the technical skill to execute. Uh, so we can help with that. But what that does is the more that we have to spend on the book, it slows our processes down. And, and we're really kind of. Uh, uh, I would I would say, yes, there's definitely um, when you haven't done this yet. There is there is different expectations or different, you know, how you think it plays out. You know, I just from a personal standpoint, having having my idea for fishing with nets for so long and, and constantly like writing it in my head. And then when it took, when it came to the time to sit down with uh, the writer I partnered up with and we start going, start actually like chewing into this thing and then realizing that we're 10 chapters in and you know what, this format doesn't really translate like it does, like it would if it was a podcast. So it's like, okay, we need to go back and revisit the format and how we're telling this story and, and, and essentially start over. So it's like, there, there is a lot of that because again, I was the same way. I, I, I thought, Oh, I have this in the bag. This is easy. This is a weekend project. And then when you actually get into it and you do it, you're like, Oh man, this is hard. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, what's uh, makes it more uh, difficult is that uh, as I said before, it's a tough racket because uh, technology has made self-publishing and writing easier. It doesn't yeah. mean it makes it better or ensure that it is actually good. It just makes it doable. So there's uh, billions and billions of books out there that uh, you're competing with in, in whatever genre that you, you like and, and want to write in. So it, it's, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> very difficult. Um, so if you have managed to succeed, then you're all, you're onto something because you've, you've found a niche. Um, you know, I'm anxious to see how, how your book turns out. Uh, I think 
Um, I'm, we, uh, yeah, we're changing, we're changing the style completely and, and it's going to be a more overall like overview look at, at the, like the relationship spectrum. So we think we, th we think we have a good new direction. We'll see how it, we'll see how it translates once we start executing. <laughs> yeah. And that's, uh, the one thing that uh, I think is a, a good feeling for us as, as a company is to uh, we know how it feels to uh, succeed in that tough market and getting a book published uh, is a, uh, it's a defining event for, for folks. And if you're writing about something that means a lot to you, or if you're writing about uh, something that uh, you're, you know, again, you're, trying to help somebody say with PTSD and you're taking them down a path that you went to success and you write about it. And it's satisfying to know that you may have contributed to the overall veteran community. Yeah. So did you like, did you, did you like being uh, in the ALO realm? Was that, was that the right move for you? You think after you look back on it? Absolutely. Loved it. Loved it. I, that is the, uh, I almost feel like I had two full careers and the second one as an ALO was the better of the two. I, I love the first, but I, I, the people I've met, the things I got to do. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, also too, you know, you being a squadron commander in my squadron and then, you know, I remember uh, our meetings and things like that, where we're talking about changes and then, you eventually got to go up and take the group and like actually start really changing things that we had always been like, man, this would be so much better if we could d get this or do this. So yeah, and that was really, that's another aspect. I'm glad you brought that up. It was very satisfying to be able to affect an actual change uh, in this business, especially when we were uh, deploying constantly. It was, um, deja vu all over again you'd go down range you'd have you'd leave there with a set of problems in place that you just couldn't get to and then you you go through a rotation cycle you come back and lo and behold there they are so it really made you uh strive to achieve an actual change and i i, I did feel like i got to do that uh i'm gonna take you on a couple stories to get your perspective on it because i think it's really funny like specific things that happen with you as our commander and like it also too going telling telling all you guys out there like how different the, the military has become now than it was 20 years ago i know everybody says that but yes you you cannot do the things that we did 20 years ago now <laughs> or even start but uh specifically this is like one of one of the funniest things to me because i can't believe that i was in a formation during a commander's call and heard this said, uh, but we were at a, we were at sports day for the base and us being, you know, the TACP squadron on Pope air force base, we're competitive and everything. So we're being loud and we're talking a bunch of trash and we're, we start pissing off the services, the services career, you know, squadron who are, you know, they're the people that work at the gyms and the, and the chow hall and everything like that. Well, they got so mad that a couple of them, uh, waited for one of our guys to walk back home from the squadron, our squadron to the dorms. And they jumped him like old school, jumped him. 
And when we found out, we all split up into teams and hit the base. And I remember Spreeder and I went into the chow hall and we started asking questions and you could see that there were like four guys in the back, like just deer in headlights, like, Oh God, that you could tell that, that, that we found, we found the guilty ones right there. Well, right after we go to walk out that building is when we get the phone call that says, get back to the squadron. There's this, there's a commander's call and you walk into the room and you go, let me just, let me just say this first. You will not go around base and start fighting like you're in gangs. (laughs) (laughs) And I just remember being like, that is, that this is, this is the funniest, funniest commander's call or ass chewing ever. (laughs) (laughs) So from your side, like, do you remember this? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it was also, uh, you reminded me of something that is funny and I'm not going to take your, your time, but the, uh, when we were, uh, remember when we had those, um, base runs and it was right as they were transitioning to the, uh, air force PT outfit mm-hmm. uniform. And, uh, we and still we had no. our, yeah, we still <laughs> had our black, uh, black, uh, t-shirt, black shorts. And, uh, we came up singing Jody's, which nobody else on base could, they don't do. even know them. No. So let alone, we, like the run is hard for them, let alone being able to <laughs> sing and be in step. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Running up, uh, to the formation and everybody else was in their bright, shiny air force blue, uh, PT gear uniforms. And we all had our black on and, and, uh, the wing commander was up on some stage with a microphone and, and we came in perfect. Awesome. Pulled into formation, uh, you know, and, and, uh, halted and and he he just said hey don't be intimidated by them they put their pants on one at a time just like us <laughs> always always I, re- I i yeah i remember doing the 82nd airborne division run with you and you were i, I was right up i think i was carrying the guide on because that's why i was running next to you i remember there's there's always like the cg or there's one of the generals that stands on that podium as every unit comes in and he announces the unit. And I remember we're coming up and they go, and next we have these guys. <laughs> Cause we're just in black shorts and black shirts. Cause our shirts really, they just had a parachute on them. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And looking through the, the guidebook, like who are those guys? Yeah, I know it was, it, it's changed so much because, you know, last year, a few squadron commanders got got ripped out of their seats over over the taping up and rolling and it's like to me i feel like that's a that's a mislabeling and a misunderstanding and it's i see it as a mid-tier person in the middle upper management fearing that that's going to cost them their job but in in retrospect it's like when if 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 General Goldfein gets a note on his desk that says, hey, you, you know those guys that, all those guys that you have out there calling in casts on the bad guys? Well, they're roughhousing up in Alaska. Like, do you really think General Goldfein is worried about the, the, the guys he sends to go drop bombs on people because they're, they're, they're roughhousing? <laughs> <laughs> no, and, you know, I, I guess neither one of us can speak to that exact event, but I know... Uh, the uh, supposedly at the 14th, uh, you know, rolling guys up was a thing, um, you know, I, I'm assuming. And, uh, yeah, yeah. But it was never done, I don't think. 
uh, in a malicious way. It was oh. almost, a, it was like a rite of passage. It was a brotherhood thing. You earned and, it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I mean, you got rolled up on your birthday or you're, you were leaving the squadron. I mean, or in my case, most three to four or five days a week, but <laughs> I, it wasn't that I, I did it on purpose. Like I remember, you know, walking into Bravo flight because they asked where the vacuum was. Yes. We only had one vacuum. Um, and I walked in and just threw the vacuum and go, here's your fucking vacuum <laughs> as an E3. And I knew what I was getting myself into, but just my reward for that was the look on all their faces when the cherry just did that. And then I'm like, all right, I'm ready to take my beating. Yeah. And you were probably uh, running around the uh, building with the giant parachute. <laughs> or, oh, that was the best. They, yeah. We had, we had uh, these massive, it was it was like airborne wings that were cut out of a piece of three quarter inch plywood and spray painted gray, and then it had everybody's name on the back of the wings with their time on how many what their time was for three laps around around the bay. And there is an art to it. Once you figure it out, you can shave off almost twenty seconds of your time because what happens is is initially guys want to cut inside too much and they hit those wings on the metal poles around the bay <laughs> and it spins you around. <laughs> now I always thought that that was a, uh, uh, almost necessary, uh, unofficial aspect of that lifestyle. And I thought it was good. Um, well, it, and I've, I've written an article on this before, but to me, it, there never was a negative impact on the way that the guys were out there. If anything, like, like, yeah, they were hard on you. Like they were super hard on you. They were mean. You got the, you got the fucking shit smoked out of you on a regular basis. Like if you couldn't answer a question, if you didn't know, you know, if you, if you didn't know something you should have known, if you didn't do what you were supposed to do, you're picking up two jerry cans full of water. You're going to start running and you're going to pay. Well, at the same time, and, and, and I've said this a couple of times when I go and speak to the students out here, it's, you know, I tell them when a few years down the road, when I'm 21 years old and I'm the only JTAC in an entire battalion of army guys, and I'm sitting in a talk with nothing but guys, captain and hire, I don't feel intimidated in that setting because I was conditioned to such a high standard of just, you know, personal tolerance of, 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 of kind of interaction and shit talking and all that stuff that it was like, I'm not afraid at that point to speak up if I think something's wrong or if I think we're, we can use something better that, that an air asset offers. Like I'm not, uh, it taught me to like, just not have fear in a complex social situation, like a talk or something like that. So I attribute Everything that those guys did and the, everything that they did for me, like it helped later down the road. Well, I'm glad you said that because uh, I'd really be remiss in speaking of the community not to highlight what you're talking about and put it in, in a different way. I know that you have a diverse audience and uh, all may not be military experts, but um, a senior airman like you were the E4 uh, E4 yeah uh the mated uh army 
liaison, who you're liaisoning with is a uh, lieutenant colonel army battalion commander. And in some cases, you know, that that was the extreme in, in low rank. But so we had an E-4 uh, going toe to toe with a fire breathing army infantry battalion commander representing the air component, all air power to that entire 700 man battalion through that uh infantry officer who who was probably sitting around 18 20 years 18 20 years in the 82nd because they didn't leave nope so yeah you had some very stubborn very hard-headed just angry individuals that i've got to go and convince him that i'm gonna be good at what i say i'm gonna do (laughs) yeah and that uh you know talk about putting the guy on the spot and and there was no um you know, you can't have redos. Uh, you know, you're in combat and you have to make you have to make your case to the battalion commander. You have to represent the Air Force three star. And uh, what that did, though, is when you came back and you had those kinds of experience, the preparation that you had when you did things that were on the base, like we're, you know, at Pope Air Force Base at the time, there was an air contingent. So you had a whole bunch of airmen. And then we'd have the ALS, the Airman Leadership School. Our guys would crush it because they were so mature. They, like you said, in social situations, you're not. What are you going to be embarrassed by? You're, you're, well, you're just on the line. In this the was something I realized a couple of years ago. You know, after being out and being in different circles and stuff like that, and hanging out with you know a bunch of high-ranking individuals in the in DC and things like that. But you realize. Where else in the military does an E4 or E5 understand the military decision-making process and how wars are fought utilizing, like, like global assets? Like, <laughs> like, you start to realize, like, oh, you know, when I see a, when I see a, a young, you know, senior lieutenant or a, or a captain looking at me like I'm a deer in, deer in the headlights while I'm talking to a one-star, two-star about... Hey, okay, yeah, this happens, this, and then the AOC does this, and then we're here, we're here, this is what goes down here, and 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 these guys are like, what? And then you you kind of realize, like, okay, our entire from the time we are we are literally just students in our career field, we are taught how to plan, and then how that planning goes all the way up to the the entire military level like of of the dod so it's like you know when when we go through the md mdmp portion of 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 the training you're learning how a decision comes from the president goes to the secretary of defense and what happens to that decision as it goes down the chain there aren't many a4s out there that that have any understanding of that (laughs) no and that's what uh I, i took a lot of pride in in uh being uh I guess graced with the opportunity to lead uh, young men and uh, now women in those positions with that responsibility. You know, you look at them and you go, "Man, I can't, I couldn't be any prouder." And uh, it's a tough job. It's uh, you, you know, you're you have that liaison responsibility we just talked about. That's one thing, but then you got to be a technical expert. You got to be a tech, technical and tactical expert in what you do. So, okay, now you got to fight it out with the lieutenant colonel, but then you also got to get the bombs on target, make sure you're not going to hurt any friendlies, uh, get the right effects, 
you know, sequence the aircraft so you're not sending bombs home. Bombs home. Got to understand the three-dimensional airspace. It's it's amazing. Yeah, but even then, and and pushing that back to understand that the the way that you operate every day in a theater with planning directly affects how much support you're going to get later down the road. So if you're not planning or you're not requesting assets from the Air Force and you're just waiting for something to happen and hope that you can call the troops in contact and pull an aircraft from somewhere, well, that's going to lower the amount of allocation of air power that we're going to get for that theater because when they start assessing the data, they see, well, they're not really requesting a lot. So it's a, it's a super complex complex deal but another fun fact about you is your degree is in physics isn't it (laughs) (laughs) have you seen interstellar yes (laughs) would you think of it (laughs) could Uh, you understand it better than i can (laughs) no oh okay (laughs) don't feel bad (laughs) yeah i i i I didn't quite get it but what about uh, the uh these two new tapes they just released this week the the lightning AT tapes of these these UFOs? I thought that was a joke. I I didn't look at it. What, oh, was it's it, yeah, it's legit. Yeah, really? You should you should watch them because it's it's hard to explain. Well, that's cool. I I'm, <laughs> I'm going to look at that. One of the videos has uh has the the audio of the pilots. So so yeah, you can hear you can hear what they're talking about while they're like, "What is this thing?" <laughs> but he locks it up with a with a with an AT pod, and uh, and it was doing some wacky stuff. <laughs> were they throwing some alien chaff out? <laughs> <laughs> it was just, I mean, you're you're seeing white hot and black hot footage. Uh, you're seeing IR footage, so mm-hmm. you you see a heat signature. It's just the the mechanics of it. Like it's doing things, it's rotating uh, while it's going incredibly fast forward, like in a headwind. Like one of the tapes, they were in a hundred and twenty knot headwind, and this thing was accelerating, and then it was rotating and turning around on them. Like, so it's just weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually thought about uh, uh, cracking back open. Uh, some of the old physics books because I don't I don't think I can split an atom today. I, I probably forgot all that stuff. But so uh, so you couldn't you wouldn't be somebody that you know like a like a weird organization that steals a nuke. They have to get the the physicist to to put it together. I just watched a movie that needed they they needed the fit- physicist. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I always think uh, you know as you're getting older that you know how every <coughs> kind of B movie. Uh, has a guy working on an old truck in an open field and a helicopter lands and the guys get out and they say, uh, dude, we need you. And yeah. uh, it's like, okay, here I go. I'd <laughs> yeah. say, nah, that's no, I, I don't think I could do that. Anymore. Not, not on the physics part. You want me to go fight somebody? Sure. But <laughs> <laughs> well, this was awesome. So uh, where can, if anybody out there is, 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 thinking about putting their toe in the water to start a book. How can they get a hold of you? How can they throw a submission out to you? How can they get in touch with a one five publishing? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we have a website, uh, 
a15publishing.com. And uh, you can email us at info at w or uh, sorry, info at a15publishing.com. Awesome. Awesome. So if you ever thought about it, now's the time. Uh, hit, up, hit up Pete and see if you can throw your hat in the ring for this. Uh, we're going to have to do it again. We have to continue <laughs> down some of these stories and get, get deeper into them and talk about some of the other things that you've been doing lately because it's hyper interesting. So thanks for coming on, Pete. It's a pleasure. Well, thanks for having me, JT. It's awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Free Range American.